Today we are very pleased to be speaking once again with Daniel Franklin. Daniel is the executive editor of The Economist and editor of The World In 2012. A special greeting to World Affairs Council members, Economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, Jones Day, and we welcome our three new sponsors, SB International, Alcatel Lucent, and Vizinity Global LLC. Now, we will be covering a variety of topics this morning, and we invite you to submit your questions for Daniel using the chat feature located on your dashboard. Now, one of the fun parts of listening live to our program is the opportunity to win prizes courtesy of The Economist and our sponsors by being the first to correctly answer one of our challenge questions. So stay tuned for your chance to win a subscription to The Economist or an inscribed copy of Condoleezza Rice's new book, No Higher Honor. Daniel Franklin joined The Economist in 1983, and since then he has held titles including the Europe Editor, Britain Editor, and Washington Bureau Chief. Since 2003, he has been the editor of the annual publication of The World In, and has served in his current position as executive editor of The Economist since 2006. Daniel, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be back with you. Congratulations. This is another great edition, and I know people will be looking forward to reading it, and we have the, the privilege of discussing it even before it hits people's mailboxes. I find it just so difficult to believe that a, a year has passed, a full year since our last conversation, so I imagine that, that you especially feel this time warp. By the time that uh, our, our listeners will be reading The World in 2012, uh, you're probably already outlining the 2013 issue. Well, unfortunately, the years seem to come around faster and faster, but I have to say that this year was both particularly exciting to do and, and, and particularly nerve-jacking because the background to uh, you know, the events, the news, was moving so fast as we were, as we were putting the issue together. Your opening essay presents a mixed prognostication that despite the Mayan calendar prophecy, uh, I think you feel pretty confident that the world's not going to end but you suggest uh, that it will feel as if it's about to. Why the doom, Daniel? Yeah, well, first of all, we do offer to give um, uh, customers their money back if the world does end. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think it's really all to do with the economy. I think um, at the moment, uh, and this is particularly the case if you're sitting over here in Europe, but I think it's also the case to some extent in the United States as well, uh, there is just a very, very high degree of, of uncertainty about the economy and a sense that uh, if we're not very careful, things could go very badly wrong. And so there is a, a, a possibility, and an uncomfortably high possibility, um, that it's going to be a very, very bumpy year ahead. Um, so that said, you know, there is also, I, I think if you read this publication, there's a lot to be excited about as well. There's all sorts of things to look forward to, events to look forward to, technology, um, science, and so on. But there's this background of the, of the economy that is just rather unsettling. And that's really a continuation of what we saw last year, um, your, your conclusion last year that 2011 was going to be one that the rich world would be unable to shed the unemployed and that Europe would be divided between a solid Euro core and, as you wrote, it's weaker or weakening periphery. Yes, and I think what you have to bear in mind that when you have a, a financial bust, as, as the, the, the rich world had in 2007-2008, uh, the recovery from that is always likely to be long and hard. So I think 
to some extent you would say that all this is only to be expected. I think what is new since last year is that far from getting on top of these difficulties in Europe, the crisis is, is, is um, bubbling up once again to, to uh, you know, really quite a, a hot stage and we're at a point where something has to give. Either the, the politicians are going to find a, a solution to this uh, in a much more dramatic way than, than they have so far, or it could uh, it could lead to um, you know really very very um, unfortunate um, set of uh, events. And I'm sure we'll get a number of questions about the economy and specifically the eurozone in a few minutes. But let's turn to the elections because one thing that'll be particularly interesting in 2012, as you noted, four out of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, will have a change in leadership. I'm not going to put you too much on the spot, but but heck, you are the uh, editor of the world in, in 2012. So so share with us your crystal ball. I'll, I'll give you the easy one first. Who's going to be the the next leader in Russia? But but give us your thoughts about some of the other elections that are going to take place over the course of the next uh, next 12 months. Sure, and I think you know one point to make first of all is is just the fact of, of what you just mentioned. The fact that uh, four out of these five are going to be uh, facing picking presidents in different ways is going to likely to mean that the world is going to be, the world global leaders are going to be distracted at home. They're going to be relatively inward looking and this is a time when the challenges um, that, that, that the world faces, um, the need for global coordination would are likely to be, to be rather high as well. So that in itself I think for anybody who's interested in foreign affairs is, a, is an important fact. Uh, Russia is the, the easy one um, in many ways among, amongst this because uh, Vladimir Putin has kind of picked himself as the next Russian president. There will be uh, formally elections, but everybody knows that, that Putin will be the one who is elected president um, back after his term limit um, and, and stepping down to, to give way temporarily to his uh, protege, Dmitry um, uh, Medvedev, who will um, presumably uh, swap jobs with him and become prime minister. So, in theory, Putin could be set for another 12 years uh, in power in Russia. But I think and it's as you interesting. Said in the headline, I was just going to add in the headline. You didn't even say president. You said you know, Russia's ruler. Yes, and it's, it's sort of Vladimir the second, as we put it, like a czar. Uh, but you know, even there, uh, you, you would have seen the other day, uh, Mr. Putin got booed at a, an event, uh, a martial arts event by the crowd in Russia. And that was, I think, a shock. And that video clip has been viewed uh, millions of times on, on YouTube. And it suggests that um, uh, you know, all is not well in Putin land and that uh, he may be rather more vulnerable in certain ways than uh, the image of the strong man would have you believe. So although uh, there's very, very little doubt that he will emerge re-emerge as president in elections in March. I don't think one should take that as necessarily a sign of great strength um, at the top in Russia. Uh, then you move on to the more interesting contests, I think the two really hotly contested elections uh, among those the permanent four members of the, of the UN Security Council. So the French by spring, uh, France uh, votes on uh, it's a two-round system, so the first round is uh, towards the end of April, April 2nd, and then if needed, the second round, it usually is needed, the second round will be on May 6th. And uh, President Sarkozy, the outgoing center-right president, is deeply, deeply unpopular at the moment. 
country going through all the difficulties of the uh, Euro's problems uh, may well between now and then suffer a downgrade at the hands of the rating agencies. Uh, so other things being equal, you would expect the main opposition candidate for the Socialists, uh, François Hollande, to be in a very strong position to, to take over. Uh, but the problem is that um, François Hollande is, is rather untested. He's someone who's never had a ministerial office. He's the sort of person who uh, will be betrayed as someone that, portrayed as someone who might be good for a, a sort of minor post or a local government position, but not to run uh, France. And that, that will be uh, Sarkozy's hope that he can, he can portray himself, albeit unpopular, as the man with the experience to lead France through very testing times. And then you have a further element in France, which is the, the far right, um, led by Marine Le Pen, the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who uh, created a huge ups, up, up, upturn in the previous election when he um, uh, made it through to the final round, much to the dismay of, of uh, uh, mainstream parties in France. So I think uh, the, French, the French election scene, uh, although also with the background of the Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair, um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, former head of the IMF, brought down by uh, a scandal and would have, if it were not for that scandal in New York, would have been in very, very uh, strong favorite for the socialists as their likely candidate at this stage. Now, now tell us who is going to be the next U.S. president. Well, I, I think, um, first of all, I think the likelihood is that, uh, that uh, Mitt Romney will be the nominee for the Republicans, despite the current interest surge. And I think he is... Um, Will, will be uh, in many ways the candidate that uh, uh, Barack Obama most fears because he is someone who can appear, appeal to, to independence. And then I think you would have to say, although um, you know, only, I think it's only three uh, post-war presidents, incumbent presidents, have failed to win a second term. Uh, I think Barack Obama will be in trouble depending on the economy. The economy, if unemployment stays much above nine percent as it is now. Um, I think it's uh, it, 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 he, he could well lose, and uh, so I think he, he's going to be looking again, uh, strange as it may seem, very nervously over towards Europe and the, the cold winds of crisis that are blowing the blowing from here. Uh, now, now, one of the elections that we pay a lot of attention to in, in Texas is Mexico. You know, we got accustomed for years for the. Uh, the PRI to always be the winner, but uh, perhaps uh, they'll be back. Um, and w how do you see the Mexican election that will take place in the summer? Yes, the, the PRI candidate is, uh, is, is the favorite former governor of, of Mexico State, a very uh, telegenic uh, uh, character. And, uh, you know, it's always um, interesting when you have uh, transitions of power. And for 70 years, Mexico was, was run by, uh, by the PRI, and then they had this, this great change, and it happened um, uh, remarkably smoothly. Uh, Mexican transitions, even within the PRI, haven't always been smooth, and they have been sometimes accompanied by, by uh, economic crisis. Uh, recent years, encouragingly, there has been a, a smooth transfer. Last year, last time around, uh, there was a contested election and so it's always it's always an excitement like United States it's a great country a huge country um, and these elections now are caught very keenly and and, and although uh, the PRI candidate uh, Mr. Nieto is, is currently the favorite I expect it will in the end be quite close in Venezuela I and mean, how, how seriously is uh, 
is 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 Chavez's Hugo Chavez's illness, and you know, do you think he'll get the, the support of the masses as he had in the past, or and and who might follow him? Is a worse situation he was unable to serve? Uh, well, as you say, Jim, he's uh, he faces these twin problems. I mean, there is the question mark over his health. He's been having treatment for for, for cancer, so it, is it the same vigorous Chavez of, of old? And of course, that can play both ways. It, it, if he if he comes roaring back, um, the elections are in the autumn. So if he comes by then roaring back, uh, you know the great fight of the, 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 the person who has uh, seen off his, his health uh, challenges to to, to 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 run again. That could bring him sympathy as well as um, support from his from his core voters. Uh, but even without the health question, I think he would be struggling a bit because of the mismanagement of the Venezuelan economy. So. Uh, certainly, the, the question there is whether the opposition can really unify enough to to mount credible challenge to. And then the last country I think we'll focus on right now would be a, another country on the Security Council, and that's China, who takes a very deliberative process in how they choose its leadership. Yes, and very very different. Of course, it's not uh, not a, an elect a free election; it's a selection by the party within the party, and it's again a bit like Russia, pretty much know who is going to be taking over. Uh, in, in, a, in a sort of gradual process, because there's a party congress in October, uh, and the, the new leader designate Xi Jinping is is to be elected as party leader, and then to take over a few months later, into the beginning of 2013, as as the president. So there's a a transition underway, and below that very top level, many other of the senior positions are, are going to be rotating. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, tra Chinese politics. Uh, are not transparent, but they are nervous at the, at the time of this transition. We, I think, outside China often underestimate the uh, concerns over political stability that the Chinese uh, ruling party has. So it's a it's a delicate time for China. The economy there is is um, having some difficulties of its own, and would also be worried, nervous about um, difficulties in the West as well. Uh, and there are periodically um, demonstrations, uh, sometimes quite big demonstrations, displays of popular anger um, that, make, um, that make the Chinese worry about their own stability and therefore there's going to be a sort of very delicate game of seeing what will change under new leadership, where, where, where new might they take the country, how quickly will power actually transfer and in this period of transition who's, who's really taking the decisions, who's how fast is power ebb from the, from the current leadership uh, and flow to the new leadership. You know, the world in 2012 had a fascinating piece uh, about a, a young man who is a, a blogger and the balance that, that he tries to adhere to so that he can write, do, do, do lots of tweets but, but not find himself thrown in the jail. Yes, that, that was uh, someone called Hanahan who's, uh, who's quite a character apart from being a blogger, he's also a racing driver and he has these uh, he likes racing driving, and he, he, he has these colorful analogies with uh, driving a racing car, with how far you can push uh, radical political ideas in China. You know, too fast, maybe you crash. Uh, not fast enough, maybe you don't win the race. So, uh, so I think he's a, a, a you know, those sorts of voices are the, are the interesting ones, uh, um, the interesting ones to listen to. No, no push, no push, no change is the phrase he used. Rather, rather a colourful one. 
And, and that's a good segue to maybe pause for a minute and, and, and tell us about how you go about constructing uh, the world in, because you really do take a, a tack that's different than, than lots of media. I mean, you know, each, each year I get Time and Newsweek, which is uh, more of a retrospective on the past year, and, and, and you're more daring and, and, and look ahead. Um, to tell us how you recruit some of the opinion pieces that you do get from leaders around the world, and, and, and just how. And, and this year, I noticed too that China merited its own section, which I think is the first time that, that that's happened. And let me again remind our listeners to feel free to send in questions and comments, and we'll read as many as we can over the air. Yes, well, we, we, we actually we've introduced two uh, new sections this year. One is uh, the China section, as you say, and, and the other is a culture section. So it, uh, it, it is a really trying to reflect the, the variety of things that we want to look ahead at to uh, when we take this 12-month uh, forward perspective. And China, just because it's uh, so important, so almost any issue that you take in the world today, China has a, a key role, a key influence. So it just seems a natural progression to uh, devote a section of its own to, to China. And we really start, um, the process of starting this uh, it begins in the spring. With a, in a very English way, we have an editorial tea here at The Economist. Uh, I gather together about uh, a couple of dozen of my colleagues uh, over crucial ingredients of chocolate and flares and tea and uh, this works wonders for stimulating ideas. You know, you start to think, what what will be the um, the events? What will be the ideas that people might be interested in for for the, for the coming year? And who might be the people who who would be interesting to ask to contribute? As well as the, the core of it is economist staff, but we 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 also ask a couple of dozen uh, invited contributors from elsewhere every year, and try to get a, a, an interesting mix of uh, politicians, business people, cultural figures. One of the things, too, that I, I noticed was um, reading John Micklethwaite's piece, um, where it, and it was entitled Democracy and Its Enemies. And uh, you know, the US presidential election, I think this year, it really is going to focus on the role of government. Um, but another debate uh, John mentions is gathering steam, and, and that is really over the fundamental strength of Western democracy versus liberal and, and, and liberal capitalism, and we're seeing that playing out in, in China and certainly in the Arab Spring. Uh, given the continued economic uncertainty, um, do you think, as, as John does, that 2012 will be the battle of ideas? Um, and, and will it be, as he also says, and he uses the word, will it be nasty? And, and how might that play out? I mean, we've certainly seen the the protest in, in, with Occupy Wall Street in the United States. We saw that you know horrendous riots earlier in, in the UK. So how do you how do you see this? Yes, I think it is uh, increasingly stormy and, and, and uh, noisy. Uh, and in, in a sense, it's uh, the surprise is that it's taken uh, as long as it's taken for for, for, for these degrees of social unrest to 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 manifest themselves and and. In some places, maybe surprising that you still haven't seen more. I mean, if you take a country like Spain, for example, where you have um, 45, 46 percent youth unemployment, really astonishing numbers, and, and the general unemployment level of 21 percent. I mean, imagine that in the United States. Um, that's uh, really a very, very painful economic situation, and yet you have you have protests, but it's been very reserved, and it's been. Uh, was Indianados, a peaceful protest, mainly by young people. That has the potential 
there and elsewhere to become much noisier than it has uh, been uh, hitherto. Uh, and at the same time, you do have uh, people elsewhere saying, well, what about um, other systems, perhaps more authoritarian systems? Do they have advantages? Do they not experience these sorts of crises? So if you are strong believers in um, the, the liberal model, uh, liberal and classical sense, in, in uh, the freedoms that um, both politics and the economy that we uh, have enjoyed in the West, um, then defending those freedoms is, is becoming a, a tougher job, I suppose. Uh, we have our, our question from Ian, and we'll jump right to the Middle East. Ian says, while we're talking about a change in leadership, he's been very interested in the Arab Spring. It seems to continue to gain strength and legitimacy throughout the Middle East. Uh, how large do you think that this promising movement will become? And uh, while, while you answer that, Daniel, I, I know that you have a piece in the 2012 about how the Arab Spring might might go south. You might touch upon that as you res respond to Ian's question. Yes, well, absolutely, and it, 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 it's it's been extraordinary. And I, and, and I would hold my hand up and say, you know, this is not something that we um, that we really predicted uh, last time around. So, so there you have one of the, the most extraordinary developments. Of Currently, it shows how how things uh, in, would always happen that, that you don't see coming, uh, and and uh, it, it just has has gained an an extraordinary momentum, and it, that momentum is is still going on. Currently, most uh, most uh, dramatically in Syria, uh, but there are other places where you could imagine it would spread with with quite uh, again quite dramatic. Uh, potentially quite dramatic consequences. And Saudi Arabia is a place where I think, um, I, I wouldn't predict that it would su succumb to this sort of upheaval in the coming year, but it has a, a, a very difficult uh, gerontocratic succession. Um, and, and that is, of course, a, a, a strategically a, a very key country. And then, as you say, Jim, we, we, we talk about where, where this might head next. And could you see the example spreading to sub-Saharan, where people do follow very closely what's happening further north, and you have the technology of mobile telephones, which help people to, to organize, to communicate. And there are, I think it's nine countries of sub-Saharan Africa where the leaders, the current leaders, have been in, in power for, for more than 20 years. So those are the ones that are going to be particularly, um, potentially vulnerable places. Let's go back and, and, and look at, at Europe, um, because one of the things that uh, Zanny points out, and she's your economics editor, that 2012 is a period where the West economy will continue to falter, and you certainly see the growth with the emerging nations in Russia, India, and China. Yes, if you look at, I mean, this is a sort of central forecast um, that comes actually from uh, my colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and what you see there is very weak growth in, in the United States. Um, slightly stronger growth even in Japan, which is counterintuitive, but that's partly because of uh, what is likely to be a bounce back in Japan from the uh, from the disruption following the, the earthquake and the nuclear catastrophe of Fukushima. Um, but Europe, Europe is the alarming one, even if you assume that the Eurozone holds together and, and, a, and a deeper crisis is avoided, Europe is heading into recession, may well already have entered a recession. Uh, so the forecast there is for a contraction of the eurozone economy next year, and uh, and it could get a lot worse than that. Meanwhile, 
um, elsewhere in the big emerging markets, much stronger growth, although weaker growth than, than in recent years. So China, which has become used to sort of double-digit uh, growth, is, is going to be somewhat off that. And I would hazard a guess that if you were doing this today, the Eurozone number might be even lower. It might well, and, it, and it, the, the difficulty of forecasting this is you, you have a, a sort of disruption. You, you can have a, an assumption of central forecast of what happens assuming that the Eurozone holds together, and you might think there that the recession would be a relatively uh, uh, modest one. But if the Eurozone were to break up and if, uh, any number of scenarios of how that might happen, uh, then you're looking at something much, much more uh, gloomy, much, much grimmer, and that in turn, because the Eurozone itself is actually the biggest single uh, chunk of the economy in the world, uh, that would have a knock-on impact uh, right around the world. You know, Daniel, we were talking earlier about the uh, front page of the, today's Dallas Morning News, which had above the fold on the front page uh, a story about the Eurozone and, and whether or not uh, uh, it, it would fracture. Um, which I think really underscores the impact that this has and the attention that it's getting all, all over the world. Yes, it's, it's serious when it gets to Dallas, but I wonder you know, whether even people within Europe uh, are finding it finding hard to get their minds around, first of all, the urgency of it, and secondly, the, the potential uh, drama of it, you know, how, how, uh, quite how disruptive it could get if, they, if the euro were to come apart with the, the extent of potential trade disruption, the, the, the amount of wealth that could potentially be destroyed, um, and the, the uh, tit-for-tat recriminations that could follow. This is really would be uncharted territory. Let me ask you this. You know, over the last year we saw uh, the UK and France conduct a number of joint uh, military exercises. There have been lots of discussions about the uh, alliance now and close relations between France and Germany, and yet now perhaps that's not as strong. Um, how do you see this sort of playing out over the course of the next few months? Well, I think you have to just sort of differentiate between what happens on the political front uh, and what happens on the military front. And that, you know, to some extent, you pick your alliances depending on uh, the, the, the type of issue. So yes, absolutely, France and the UK have been collaborating very closely militarily, most notably, of course, in, um, in Libya, uh, where, where the two countries worked extremely closely together, really led that, uh, that, that NATO effort. Um, but in politics and on the Euro issue, it, it's a completely different game. And there, Britain and France are quite far apart. Uh, and France and Germany, although they have their differences, are, are, are condemned to try to act together as closely as possible. And that, is the, that becomes the key relationship. And the, the question, really, over the coming weeks and months is how closely will France and Germany uh, be able to, to uh, work? And will they manage to come up with a, a solution that actually gets ahead of this crisis work instead of con continually uh, trying to catch up with it? We do, we do have a question from Fred. And he wanted to ask, how close is the Greek economy to collapsing, um, and, and what would be the long-term impact, uh, really, of that? Uh, well, I mean, Greece has been is where the euro crisis began, of course, and it's still in deep difficulty. It's really on life support, uh, so it depends on um, bailout from the from the uh, 
European Union and the IMF. So in part it depends on Greece itself doing enough to continue to get money from, uh, from, from those institutions uh, to, to, to save it and keep it in the euro. Uh, but the question partly in Greece is not only one of what the government does, but whether Greece uh, remains governable. So one could easily imagine that um, there would be a degree of, of dissent, dissatisfaction, popular dissatisfaction with the austerity that has uh, that, that is now being imposed on Greece, which is very very severe and very deep, um, now into the third year of, of uh, economic contraction, and and you might get um, demonstrations and uh, and, a, and a rebellion against this, which would mean that Greece would just have no option but to leave the euro, and that then itself would set off a train of events in other euro area countries, because it was never envisaged that any country could leave the euro. It was a, a one-way ticket. You went in, but you couldn't go out. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's no legal arrangements uh, set out for it, and uh, it, the, all the repercussions for individual savings, for business contracts, and then for the panic that might follow in other vulnerable countries of the euro area. Uh, that, that that could be uh, quite a drama, and so I think the, the, the question is actually the right one. Greece is where it began, and Greece is easily where the next ratcheting up of the crisis could come. Well, let me let me ask you this, and it's a question that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. And as, as you see, how the United States is debating different di different options. In, in hindsight, did David Cameron's embracing to such a large degree fiscal austerity go too far? Um, and do you think he'd like to walk back from it, or would that be uh, contemplating political suicide? Uh, well, you're right on the question of actually the day in Britain, because today uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, has been uh, given his uh, autumn budget statement, where this is uh, you know, he, he is setting out a situation where the economy is worse than he previously imagined, where the austerity is going to be out to be longer than, than previously expected, and of course the opposition. Labour Party is attacking uh, on precisely the lines that you outline, you know, that austerity was too too much, too fast, and this is the consequence. I think the government would very much say uh, that its strategy was right, that whereas other countries, for example, in the Eurozone, have been punished in the, in the bond markets, uh, Britain has, like the United States, very low uh, uh, rates to pay, to borrow money, uh, and um, that uh, really the, the, the government, coalition government of Conservatives and Liberal Democrats inherited such a dire situation that to uh, get things under control they had very little choice. Now, having said all that, I think the world is different from when they set out. So although uh, I think some quite uh, radical economic policies were needed and, and uh, a firm grip on the national council needed, uh, there is uh, a need now because growth is, is a priority to try to find it wherever you can and stimulate the economy, stimulate growth uh, as much as possible within these very uh, demanding fiscal uh, framework. We have a question from Alice and you certainly do uh, have a, a focus in the world in 2012 on major growth industries so Alice you'll be sure to want, you'll be sure to want to read the issue but Daniel what do you think will be the the growth industry of 2012 uh, well I think uh, it's still going to be a, a, an exciting year for, for technology we have a an interesting take on 
uh, you know, what will be the new frontiers of technology in 2012. So if you take the, the new digital landscape where you have already certain territories, if you think of it as like the new world, certain territories have already been colonized. Google has colonized search. Uh, Amazon has uh, commerce. Facebook has social world. But there are still new lands, new new territories to be conquered. And uh, three of those, I think, are worth watching. One is the whole area of, of mobile payments. Another is what's sometimes called augmented reality, the sort of overlaying of layers of data on the real world so that you provide extra information on what is around you. Uh, and the third is uh, all sorts of services to do with location when combined with mobile telephony can be very powerful. And, and those are territories that where there are, I'm sure, enormous fortunes to be made, creative new um, enterprises to be set up, and both the existing tech giants and new startups will be will be battling for those territories and others. You're really seeing that in India too, aren't you? And you have a feature about the new ways to uh, uh, capture identities in India. Fascinating that. I mean, there's uh, an article by Nandan Nilakani, who uh, was one of the founders of a uh, giant Indian software company, uh, uh, Infosys, and is now a minister in charge of this program of giving every single Indian, and remember, uh, has more than a billion Indians, uh, a personal uh, biometric ID number uh, to give them an identity that can um, be used for um, anything from making sure they can be the right recipients of their uh, their, their welfare benefits to making uh, it much easier to bring them into the financial system uh, through getting loans and bank accounts and so on. Uh, it's an absolutely enormous project, very, very uh, ambitious, and it's something that is um, a sign of how uh, innovative sometimes um, we see these uh, emerging markets becoming, in, uh, particularly when it comes to use of technology. You know, I guess back to Alice's thoughts, so a, a business or an industry sector that may be facing some challenges is the defense industry in the United States. Certainly, I mean, it's one where um, budgets are going to be squeezed, so the question will be what sort of strategy uh, do you adopt to, to uh, in, in tighter times? And, and I think it's, um, it's particularly uh, challenging when the sort of threat, the nature of the sort of threat that America is going to be facing is, in future is so unclear. I mean, nobody really imagined uh, a few years back that the next uh, big challenge was going to be many boots on the ground in, in uh, places like Afghanistan. Uh, that was totally unexpected. That was the sort of, supposed to be the sort of thing that had come to an end, and then suddenly uh, America needed capabilities that it, it thought maybe it wouldn't wouldn't require. Uh, next next up, who knows where um, the next challenges may come from? They may come from cyberspace rather than more of the, 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 the conventional threats. So America is in this situation of having budgets tightened, but uh, threats potential threats multiply. You know, one of my favorite sections of the world in is the. Uh, dates to remember, and despite the proliferation of online tools, uh, the, the Economist calendar is one of the favorite things that I have on my bulletin board, and it's a great gift. Uh, I, I circled some fun dates. Uh, bull camels uh, in January, let's see, in January, bull camels compete in Turkey's annual camel wrestling championship in Selkuk. 
Uh, we've already mentioned that in February, Queen Elizabeth celebrates uh, 60 years on the British throne. Uh, the North Koreans will commemorate in April the 100th birthday of Kim Il-sung. And if you're looking for um, some uh, type of luxurious uh, commemoration, uh, go ahead and reserve your spot on a 12-day cruise from Southampton to the side of the Titanic's uh, collision with an iceberg. Uh, Daniel, you circle some dates on, <laughs> on, on your calendar. You know, well, as, you, as you can see, we try to have some fun of, about this and in, the, in the midst of the sort of serious dates, such as you know elections and primaries and so on. Uh, well, the the uh, the, the uh, hundredth anniversary of the uh, of the first parachute uh, jump, uh, which was in St. Louis, uh, that's uh, that from uh, from a powered aircraft. Um, uh, the one that I particularly like actually is the twentieth anniversary in December uh, of the first text message, first SMS. Uh, you know, that was. Uh, it seems amazing that that was only 20 years ago because it's become such a common form of communication. And that first message said quite simply, Merry Christmas. Well, it's, it's certainly a good way to amaze your friends if you can pick some of those dates and, and, uh, and use it in various trivia contests. And you do do a lot of fun with the world. And, you know, uh, frequent listeners know that uh, we had a number of our, our, our friends going to the Buttonwood Gathering in October. Um, and uh, I wish we had gathered people together to go to the uh, World in 2012 Festival, which takes place uh, uh, later, later this week in New York. Tell us about the highlights. Uh, pique our interest so that we can have a group go next year. Uh, well, this year we have, uh, we have Alec Baldwin, which is certainly a highlight. We have political discussions with the likes of George Stephanopoulos and uh, 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 Mary Mappin, and, and uh, we have uh, also... Um, uh, music um, from Moby, so it's it's a very very varied uh, festival. It's a gala dinner and then a day of discussion with um, covering a lot of the issues that we've been talking about today. In fact, so it, it, it tries to get something of the mix of uh, serious politics, serious economics, cultural issues, and fun uh, that the World in publication has. All of which is clearly the common theme is looking ahead. Well, our listeners are getting an early premiere of the world in 2012, but there are other they'll be able to watch, I guess, online some of the highlights of the festival. Yes, some of it will be uh, will be put up online. You can actually see some of the um, uh, highlights from last year's festival online uh, already. And that, that, that we had, um, uh, among others, we had uh, President Clinton uh, speaking at that event. Uh, interestingly, he'd come literally hot off the plane from being at the uh, selection for the World Cup um, uh, venues. Of, uh, well, and people can also go to their iPad and download highlights from the world in, in, in 2012. One of the things that I found particularly interesting in this month's or, or this year's edition was the piece by Brazil's President Dilma Rousseff. Um, it was a really almost combative essay in which she challenged traditional multinational institutions such as the IMF and the UN Security Council to adapt to what she described as new centers of economic and, and social development. Uh, she went on to say that debt accumulation is no substitute for rising wages and market self-regulation is no substitute for government regulation. Uh, Daniel, are, are you there or have we lost yes, you? Yes, I'm sorry, I, we, well, yeah. I lost you again. Yeah. 
Well, what I was uh, talking about, if you didn't didn't hear, was I, I really felt that the piece by Brazil's president was was quite strong, almost combative. I, I wonder what your thoughts were about it. Yeah, yes, I would agree with that. I think very confident. First of all, it it, it uh, shows the idea that um, you know the leaders of these uh, big new emerging powers, and Brazil is certainly one of them, are very conscious of their growing strength, uh, and she. Um, I think two things I would highlight. One is that she seems very confident in the Brazilian model, and, and she is essentially continuing the same sorts of policy directions that her predecessor, uh, President Lula, followed. Uh, very confident this is something that works and that is uh, perhaps um, worthy of looking at or uh, emulating elsewhere in the world. And also, uh, confident and, and demanding that um, countries like Brazil deserve more of a voice in the world through um, the, the international um, institutions such as the U.S. Security Council, the IMF, and the World Bank. So um, it's, a, it's, it's combative in the sense that it's asserting Brazil's uh, rights and, and its um, power of example and right to be heard. Now, when you uh, contract or not contract, when you invite someone like the president um, to pr provide an essay, do you give them sort of an outline or a subject, or do you just leave it to them to pick the subject? I, I tend to give them a broad subject, um, but to leave it open for, for them also to um, suggest something else if there's something they really want to say. And I, I also try to uh, say, you know, it really does help if they make sure they're forward-looking and if they can look ahead to something specific that they know is going to be happening in the year ahead. So, for example, to take to Rousseff, one thing that she does mention is the, uh, the the gathering, the global gathering, which will take place in Rio de Janeiro uh, next summer, the Rio Plus 20, because it's 20 years after the original Earth Summit in Rio. Uh, and, of course, she uh, presents that as something that will be a, a very important uh, environmental meeting. I, I actually think it's uh, likely to be a big disappointment in the sense that preparations for it are not going terribly well, uh, and uh, it, it, these global gatherings on climate have tended to disappoint in recent years. No, in fact, today's Wall Street Journal had a, a piece saying, you know, climate change is sort of passe because everyone is focusing on, on, on the economic doldrums that are affecting the world economy. Uh, well, I think that makes it harder for the politicians, but at the same time, um, I think that misses part of the the, 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 the story, which is that at other levels, at levels, for example, of corporate uh, innovation in energy and uh, energy saving, I think actually quite a lot is going on. It's, it's uh, really quite a, a time of, uh, of, of excitement in many areas. We have an article about electric cars, which are uh, going to be um, coming onto the roads in serious numbers in, in the year ahead. And I think that the uh, level of corporate leadership, often it's a win-win thing that they look at that uh, save money through very hard saving on very high energy inputs and, uh, and and be perceived as being friendly to the environment. If you can achieve that, that's obviously very attractive. So there's a lot of incentive at the business level to, to uh, invest in those sorts of technologies and in, in creative thinking in that area. We have just a few more uh, minutes, so if anybody has questions, please send them in, and I'll do my very best to squeeze them into the remaining minutes. You know, one area that we've not talked about, and I thought Bob Diamond's piece was very interesting. Uh, Diamond is the uh, chief executive of Barclays, and he wrote that Africa may help the banking and financial industries, and he used the word rehabilitate themselves. 
Yes, I think um, it's interesting that he focuses on Africa. I mean, uh, banks have had a, a really uh, terrible reputation now um, in their more traditional markets, but Africa is one of these new um, markets on the horizon, exciting markets where um, there is potential for great growth and building up in innovative ways. And if you just look at the demography of Africa, if you look over the next 50 years, uh, of the 2.3, 2.5 billion people that are going to be added to the world's population, half of those are, are going to be in Africa. So it's it's a place with uh, uh, going, to, going to be more and more uh, weighty in the world in terms of its share of the population. And those people are going to be uh, very young, and Africa has the chance to benefit from the sort of uh, demographic uh, dividend that um, Asia has enjoyed in recent years. And of course, if you're Bob Diamond, you would see uh, all these people are, are ones that ideally would have banks. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the, th the key things, too, you wrote about was um, throughout the issue was un unemployment. And uh, I'll ask you to comment on, on that because I guess that really is just like it was in 2011, going to be the critical uh, challenge for 2012. But uh, I gather that in 2012, I better uh, pull out more of my suits and be sure to wear a tie every day to work. And come to work, huh? Come to my office. Come to your office, yes. Show up. Um, this is uh, every year we, uh, we, we uh, uh, invite Lisa Cataway and the Financial Times to give her view on the sort of business trends, and that's what she perceives in the sort of mores of the office office life. It's going to be more formal. Uh, the office canteen is going to make a comeback where it, uh, where it exists instead of smash lunches at the desk, a lot more sort of formal conversations uh, happening. Uh, but yes, unemployment, I think you're absolutely right, is, is uh, first of all, politically the, the most sensitive issue, naturally, and rightly youth unemployment and long-term unemployment in particular. Um, at, but the strange thing is, and this is, we have an interesting piece from Matthew Bishop on this, that there is, at the same time as there is this, uh, at the aggregate level, unemployment, there is also a shortage of, uh, of, of uh, talent in certain areas where companies have tremendous difficulty recruiting the people they want. So there's a mismatch. In uh, what areas are those? Well, they're the, they're the sort of highly qualified, top end of things in particular, tech, technologists, engineers, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's this mismatch between the, the skills which are in high demand and the other jobs which are which are either disappearing or migrating elsewhere. Um, so that has enormous in impacts for education, training, re-education, and, and for trying to make sure that, that governments, companies, create sorts of trainings that, uh, that are going to prepare people for where the work is where the work, as opposed to where the work was. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you, Daniel, for being with us and uh, also for sending me a, a, a copy of The World in 2012 early so that I could read it over the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, uh, you know, I'm sure our, our listeners got a, a sense today of just the, the mix of very serious articles, fun articles, and careful analysis. And it, it's must-reading for all of us who are work and are interested in, in, in the global in, in environment. Uh, thanks again for for being our our guest for the for the third year, and Thank you, uh, and if, if by chance you're not yet a subscriber to the Economist, 
uh, please go to economist.com to start your subscription today. Uh, please visit as well dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on our broadcast with The Economist. And I'd like to remind you as well to find the World Affairs Council near you. Go to worldaffairscouncils.org. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank, Jones Day, SB International, Alcatel Lucent, and Visinenti Global LLC. I uh, want to wish everyone very happy holidays. And as you can see on the screen, we have a, a number of outstanding programs that will be tied to the Economist Special Reports in 2012. Remember, together, the Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.